Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, welcome to today's show. Now Mikey's going to be conducting the orchestra today because today's ep, well hopefully today's ep is going to be music to all our ears. Well Paulie, when we did that recent episode on, on the Louisiana Purchase, you remember that? We used the phrase, bought for a song. Yeah. Well that got me thinking, where does that phrase come from? You know, sold for or bought for a song. And actually mate, it's taken me on quite an interesting little journey. One that begins with Shakespeare, mm-hmm. then goes to a kid's party, and, well, it ends up in your local tattoo parlour. Tattoo parlour. Okay, go on. Okay, so with the soul for a song phrase, now, there are two theories. Firstly, from the pennies that were given to the desperate of the parish, who back from medieval times would sing outside taverns for drinking money, mm-hmm. and the other idea that it refers to a few centuries later, when sheet music became so cheap, you only needed a few pennies to buy it. Right. See, now the first mention, and here's where the Shakespeare comes in, it's from All's Well That Ends Well. I know a man sold a goodly manor for a song. Ah. And the bard would have been familiar with both drunks, naturally. <laughs> he was in the theatre. Yep. And sheets of printed song lyrics. Mm. As early forms of sheet music were actually already widely available by Shakespeare's time. And as such, they were known as broadside ballads. Right. In fact, it seems that these broadside ballads, well, they might just be where Shakespeare got some of his most memorable lines from. Mm. Take that great line from Romeo and Juliet. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks is Mm. the east. Or the course of true love never did run smooth from Midsummer Night's Dream. Both lines seem to have been directly taken from one of these broadside ballads. What, you mean Shakespeare (laughs) sort of stole these lines from the popular songs of the day? Well, yeah, mate. It it seems he copied them straight. And we know this because, you see, an early one of these early broadside ballads contains the two examples I mentioned. And it was only recently discovered in a disused glove-making workshop in the Welsh town of Glamorgan. What? And it's been dated from around about 1574, when the bard was just 10 years old. Okay. See, you've got to remember, Paulie, these broadside ballads... They were like the pop music of their day. And of course, back then, long before anyone had heard of copyright laws, it was actually quite common for poems, plays and songs to borrow popular lines from one another as they were quite often crowd pleasers. Mm. So these broadside ballads, Paulie, they contain, well, they contain themes of love, religion, legend, politics, not surprisingly, a fair amount of drinking songs (laughs) and, well, let's be honest, a lot of very crude humour. Right but they didn't contain musical notation, which obviously the first rudimentary printing presses were unable to replicate. Right, okay, so they could print the lyrics, and there were various forms of sheet music by Shakespeare's time, but that sheet music, that's still all being handwritten, right? 
Correct. In fact, the oldest example we have of musical notation is a cuneiform tablet from Nepal in modern Iraq. Yep. Now, that dates back to around about 2000 BCE. And, of course, the Greeks, they were then writing their tunes down too, weren't they? And that was probably, what, the, the 6th century BCE? Right. But, but, but something that we would look at and recognise as sheet music, well, that would take quite a few centuries. And an 11th century Italian monk. Ah, Guido, or Guido of Arezzo, to be more precise. Okay. He was a Benedictine in the early 1000s. The 1000s. Yeah, exactly, mate. In around 1013, he attended Pomposa Abbey to finish off his Benedictine education and to be part of its illustrious choir. Okay. And it was here he first expressed his frustration in the vast amount of memorisation required to sing all of the top-charting hymns and chants of the day. <laughs> now, he most likely drew on previous work, like the musical treatise of Odo of Saint-Marie de Fosse. Okay. Did I, get, did I get that right, mate? Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, okay. And also, too, he had some help with a fellow monk, a guy called Michael of Pomposa, mm. but he eventually comes up with a regular rhythmica. The Reguli Rhythmicae. Which gives us the principles, and thanks again, which gives us the principles of basic musical notation that we still use today. Great. Well, that would have pleased the other monks. Actually, no. <laughs> his fellow monks resisted his musical innovations, which makes Guido one of the first recorded people to leave the band due to musical differences. <laughs> However, he is far more appreciated by Theobald, the Bishop of Arezzo. Now, he encourages Guido, and he encourages him to write the... Oh, I'm going to have fun with this one. The Micronologist de Disciplina Artis Musicae. Musicae, very good. Yeah. Well, eventually, an, an antiphony of the work he had begun in Pomposa was given to Pope John the Nineteenth. And from then, Guido was off and running. Excellent. In fact, his system of accurately describing notation was said to have reduced the time taken to become an ecclesiastical singer from 10 years to a short 12 months. Wow. Freeing the singer from the burden of years and years and years of committing songs to memory. Mm. He also composed a hymn to St. John the Baptist, okay. in which the first syllables of each line falls on the first six tones of the major scale. Oot, re, mi, fa, so, and la. Mm. Oot was eventually replaced with do. Ah, right, do, a deer, a female deer, got it. And a millennia later, we get <laughs> Julie Andrews running through the Alps, escaping the Nazis. Okay, folks, so today's all about music. Mikey's at the wheel, <laughs> and he's got us into sheet music. Well, at least handwritten sheet music. So when did the printed sheet music come in? Well, as you might imagine, as opposed to letters, this notation was pretty difficult to print. Mm. The first printed book to contain music was the main Psalter. Now, it comes out in 1457. Mm. Now, the lyrics were easy, and, and so were the staff lines. They were all printed, but the musical notes, they also had to be added in by hand. Mm. We have to wait a few decades in improvements in the engraving process before we have printed music. Now, now the best known of these is from 1501, Petruccio's Harmonica Musicae Odecaton A, mm. which contains 96 beautifully engraved pieces of music. But, but, mate, it was a long, difficult and expensive process, sure. requiring great skill to make sure that everything lined up perfectly as the paper made its three runs through the press. Mm. That being said, Petrucci was nevertheless a great innovator and he reduced the amount of times that print required from three to two, as well as developing some early movable type. Right. 
But for single impression printing poorly, which would make sheet music far accessible, well, it seems to have its origins in London with a guy called John Russell in around 1520, before the whole process crossed the channel to France where Pierre Attenjon becomes the first large-scale producer of single impression accessible sheet music. Mm. And the process stays pretty much the same way for the next 200 years. Right. Now, this has one huge lasting effect on music. It gives us the known composer. Ah. And as such, it's the tiniest start imaginable of something that would one day become the music industry. Look, it would take a very long time, actually 300 or so years, <laughs> yeah. but the seed had been sown. The composer had arrived and they would eventually write and publish their own music and make income from sources other than having to rely on wealthy patrons. Look, that being said, for the next few centuries, a wealthy patron still really helped a composer sleep well at night. <laughs> you see, it wasn't until the advent of plate engraving that mm. technology had developed sufficiently to really drive the music publishing industry along. See, by now we're in the 18th century, and music that was previously being printed on copper had switched to pewter Plate. Right. And as such, it was considerably cheaper than the previous methods, making it freely available to the masses, hence going for a song. Got it. Okay, so by the 19th century, the music business, the publishing and printing of music at least, it centred in the US. And it wasn't just classical music, but also, of course, by now, popular music. Although I'm afraid to say... Much of this was driven by the infamously popular blackface minstrel shows. But it did lead to a thriving business in printing the songs of the day for popular consumption. You see, mate, most middle-class families had a musical instrument of some sort, and those that didn't own a piano could at least rent one. Right. So the music publishing industry started churning out these music sheets, and these businesses, well, they were mostly centred in Manhattan, in an area that became known as, and you've heard this phrase before, Tin Pan Alley. Oh, right, of course. Actually, this nickname seems to have come from Monroe H. Rosenfeld, who complained in the New York Herald that the collective noise of these songs, played on what he called cheap upright pianos, was reminiscent of pans being banged down an alleyway. <laughs> but there's another theory that, that tells the story, and it's written by an unknown journalist, and it's an article about how the Manhattan music scene, and it compared the sound made by the pianos, which had been modified with strips of paper against the strings, to give them a more percussive sound, sort of like a tin pan. Ah. Either way, the name stuck. And then with stronger copyright protection laws coming in near the end of the 19th century, popular songwriters and publishers managed to turn sheet music into a very lucrative industry. Mm. See, mate, you have to remember that up until the end of the 1920s, sheet music was everything. Recorded music was still a novelty, running a very distant second. Right. In fact, the popularity of this printed and published sheet music before the age of recording is why we still refer to publishing rights and publishing deals in regards to music. Ah, oh, right. Publishing rights, not recording rights. Okay, let's move to the early 20th century. And this is around the same time that the most sung song in the world becomes really popular. Um, oh, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Happy birthday to you. Ah, oh, of course. Although the song has its origins back in the middle of the 19th century. It involves two sisters, 
Mildred and Patty Hill. Mm. And they're somewhat progressive parents who, being great believers in the virtues of childhood education, had raised them to believe the same thing. Mm. Now, Patty would go on to be a major force in the founding of both the Institute of Child Welfare Research at Columbia University Teachers College, mm. as well as the National Association for Nurturing Education. Mm. Her sister Mildred, another teacher, was also a composer and an early collector and scholar of African-American spiritual music. Right. They were both awarded at the Chicago World's Fair. We keep talking. Which we talked about many we times, yes. At the Chicago World's Fair for their contribution to progressive education in what was then called experimental kindergarten. Ah. Mildred had actually been teaching at the Louisville Experimental Kindergarten School when the song that became Happy Birthday to You was born. Wow. But it was actually, at, at the start, a morning greeting song called Good Morning to All. Mm -hmm. As in, good morning to all, good morning to all, good morning, dear children, good morning to all. Right. You noticed I didn't sing it. I spoke. <laughs> but, but this was a song that teachers would use to greet their classes in the morning. Right. And that is how it's first published in 1893's Songs Stories for the Kindergarten. No way. A teaching manual and songbook published by Clayton F. Sumi. Right. Now, this quickly becomes a worldwide bestseller. It gets translated into French, German, Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, and Swedish. <laughs> okay. Now, also, too, very quickly, the practice evolved where the word children was often replaced with teacher, as the children would answer their teacher's greeting song like an echo. Ah, good morning, dear teacher. Exactly, and thank you for not singing as well. <laughs> now, almost immediately, controversy broke out. As you can imagine, there were more than a few greeting songs going around in the 19th century, particularly in America, but now the sisters were the ones to have gotten theirs published. They're the ones to whom it is usually attributed. Right. Then, over time, the song started being adapted further this time into a birthday greeting. Ah. Now, it first gets a mention as a birthday song in 1901, but it doesn't become official until 1924. The first time Good Morning to All is published along with a set of the new alternate lyrics, Happy Birthday to You. Ah. And then in 1931, it's given its Broadway debut as part of the musical Bandwagon. Okay. But without royalties being paid to anyone. <laughs> because no one seemed to own a clear copyright. Mm. That is, until 1935, when the Sumi company registered and received a copyright, crediting composer Preston Ware Oren and a Mrs. R.R. Forum as the authors. Okay. Now, this is really interesting, because the Sumi company, they had also published Patty and Mildred's version back in 1893 as the greeting song. Right. It all gets really weird for such a simple song. But Sumi did claim that Oren had created the piano arrangement and Forum composed a very seldom used second verse and that was good enough for them. Right. So let's fast forward to 1988. Mm -hmm. Warner Chapel Music by the Birch Tree Group, which owned the then by now Sonny Birchard Publishing Company for $25 million. Right of which the song Happy Birthday was given the valuation alone of $5 million. Right. At one stage, Happy Birthday was making Warners up to $5,000 a day, and its estimated earning power was calculated to be 
$50 million. <laughs> it's also the reason for years you never see anyone sing the whole song in a movie or a TV show ah. because it was too expensive. Yes. Now, Warner was keen to exploit these rights. Now, Disney, for a start, was paying them a fortune, and as such, Warner claimed that they owned the rights up until 2030. Mm. However, the US courts eventually got in on the act. In 2010, law professor, a guy called Robert Browns, researched and concluded it is almost certainly not under copyright. Not under copyright. So a documentary production house known as Good Morning to You Productions, well, they sued Warner Chapel in 2013, and two years later, a federal judge ruled that the Warner Chapel copyright claim was invalid Mm. and that the only rights they could justifiably claim specifically related to... Oren's arrangement of the song, not to its lyrics and its melody in general. Ah. So Warner Chapel were forced into a $14 million settlement to pay back monies previously collected. And since, well, 2016, mm. Happy Birthday to You has been happily sung legally within the public domain. Hey! Hey! <laughs> Okay, Maggie. So that's Shakespeare, and we've got now we've got the kids' parties. But what about the bit about the tattoos you mentioned at the beginning? How do they fit in? Right. Well, let's go back a bit. We mentioned the 1920s and the growing industry that was records. It was actually in 1925 that records overtook sheet music in terms of sales for the very first time. And I'm guessing it's Thomas Edison, right? We can thank for that. Well, yes and no. Actually, a Frenchman, a guy called. Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville, he actually patented the first actual mechanical recording device back in 1857. And it was seen primarily as a a sort of an early dictaphone. Although there is one only recently discovered recording of some anonymous singer belting out a crackly version of Claire de Lune from 1860. Mm -hmm. The next great advance also came from France when the poet and amateur scientist Charles Crow files a pattern in 1877 for metal discs. Okay. But yeah, Paul, you're right. That same year is when Edison conceives his idea for a device he considered might be useful for recording telegraph messages and also to automate speech for the newly invented telephone, a sort of early answering machine. Okay. In 1877, it was demonstrated to an amazed staff in the offices of the Scientific American. And after a bit of cranking, the machine uttered, Good morning, how do you do? How do you like the new phonograph? Okay. Now, the early models shifted from a disc to a cylinder, usually covered in tinfoil, which was then rotated with a stylus and a diaphragm to reproduce the sounds. It was on this version of this machine that Edison did that famous recording of... Mary Had a Little Lamb. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yes. But even then, Polly, it wasn't just Edison. Alexander Graham Bell was also experimenting, and he was using wax discs instead of tinfoil at his Volta laboratory. You see, it was Bell who realised that tinfoil broke too easily. Look, and anyway, by this stage, Edison had moved on. He was heavily involved with his work for the uh, New York City Electric Light and Power System. Right. But never one to miss a marketing opportunity. And let's not forget, Bell and Edison did not like each other. Yeah. One of the first demonstrations on what Bell called the graphophone on his new wax discs, which were played vertically, by the way, mm. were these words. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, uh-huh. than are dreamed of in your philosophy. I am a graphophone. My mother was a phonograph. He's already sticking the knife in Edison. Yes. 
But actually, there were more than a few of these recording and playback devices floating around by the end of the 19th century. Which brings us to our next player, a guy called Emil Berliner, a German-American inventor, who in music parlance cut the first disc and gave us the gramophone and the eventual 5-inch disc format which he concluded would be best suited for all the moulding and stamping necessary for multiple copies. Right, so we're now we're not talking about a recording device anymore as such, more a way of easily reproducing and distributing the copies of what's already been recorded in the original. Precisely. Look, at first there were some sound issues, but they were dealt with. And also, too, there was a big change in the ease of manufacture, especially after hard rubber was replaced with a shellac compound. And that's why we say gramophone record, not graphophone. It's Berliner's invention that dominates the market. Okay, so I've got the gramophone, but why do we say vinyl? Well, mate, that's interesting. Okay, shellac was better than rubber, but it's still very brittle. Now, during World War II, the US military had to raise the morale of troops. They wanted to send records out to the troops overseas. And these are the so-called V-discs. V for victory and V for vinyl. Now, after the war, 78s were still made out of shellac. But the newer formats, 45s singles, which I'm old enough to remember, <laughs> and 33s long plays, yeah. they were all constructed out of vinyl. Right, got it. <laughs> but hang on, what's all that got to do with tattoo parlours? Okay, Paulie, it's a bit of a long walk, but stay with me. Okay. Well, okay as I said, Edison didn't actually get it quite right with his phonograph design. It ended up sort of being like the, the Betamax of its day, I mean, compared to Berliner's gramophones and then, of course, the records that came later. Mm. But, mate, you've got to remember, there's a whole catalogue of other Edison patents that didn't pass muster in the end. By the time he died in 1931, Thomas Edison had registered over 1,000 patents. In fact, 1,093, to be precise. Mm. And, well, you can't expect all of them to be hits. <laughs> In fact, despite his reputation as being a visionary genius, quite a lot of Edison's groundbreakers were little more than improvements on previous inventions. Mm. Look, sure, a couple helped change the world, but many just didn't plain work. <laughs> or when they did work, it wasn't in the way they were originally intended. Ah, so like his telegraph message recorder becoming the record player. Exactly. And this, mate, is where the tattoos come in. Because here's the thing. One of the first inventions Edison patented out of his workshops at the famous Menlo Park was the electric pen. Ah. Or to be more precise, the electric preparatory pen for preparing stencils patented August 1876. Right. See, this battery-powered pen, and bear with me, and you know I'm not mechanical, mate, but this <laughs> battery-powered pen could make 50 punctures per second into a sheet of paper creating a smooth dotted replica of whatever the pen holder desired. Then it was just a simple matter of pressing ink through these holes and you would get a stencil. Right. Edison claimed this was good for up to 5,000 copies. Okay. And at first it was a bit of a success. Actually, most noticeably in the UK, where Charles Dodgson, who you know as... Ah, Lewis Cowell. He used it and he sung its praises. Great. But I can see a butt coming on. And here's the butt. For a start, it was held back by its primitive battery, a battery which also confounded its potential users. 
mostly uh, men in those days in accounting departments. Right. Also, too, look, Edison's pen soon found itself up against improvements in mechanical copiers, which would ultimately dominate the market. Sure. Edison would later claim that he had sold over 60,000 pens. Let's not forget, Edison was very fond of gilding the lily. (laughs) But by 1880, the writing was on the wall, and even his London sales agent wrote, the day of the electric pen has passed. Right. And that's how things would have stayed if it hadn't been for a few years later when, according to legend, tattoo artist Samuel O'Reilly came across one of these discarded electric pens at a pawn shop. I kind of doubt the pawn shop, but I still like that bit of the story. (laughs) But here's the true bit. After a few adaptations, O'Reilly was granted a patent in 1891 for a machine that could puncture skin rather than paper Ah. 50 times per second. And there we go, the modern tattoo needle was born. Right. So I've kept my promise, Paulie. It was an episode that started with drunks out the front of a Tudor tavern and it ended up in a tattoo parlour, which I think you'll agree, sort of in a roundabout way, it makes sense. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. So, of course, next week, Paulie, we're looking at our last extra helpings before our Christmas special. Heaps of topics, but I've got one word for you, mate. Cannibalism. (laughs) 